Amen. If you would remain standing and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And this morning I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. And before doing so, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Let's pray. Now, gracious Father, it is in the name of Christ that we have assembled to glorify your name, to worship you, to adore you. And now we pray and ask, O Lord, that you would enlighten our minds, that you would open up your word to us and help us to understand it. Give us the desire to receive its teaching and truths. Give us the desire, O Lord, to implement this truth into our lives. Lord, deepen our adoration of you. Deepen our love for the kingdom of God. Deepen our love for the the brothers and sisters of the kingdom. Lord, continue to impress upon us, O Lord, your most perfect and holy will. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Beloved, I want to begin reading at verse 1. And now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable, saying, Now what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends, his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And I tell you that in the same way, And there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost And in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, this morning we have the luxury and the privilege of looking at a portion of God's word that highlights and magnifies the saving grace of Jesus Christ. The amazing grace of Almighty God as concerning sinners. It's telling that in this chapter, the whole chapter that Luke put together as a gospel for the Gentiles, highlights that amazing grace, that amazing love that God has in rejoicing over repentant sinners. 
As we have noticed in our study of the parables, oftentimes our Lord Jesus will go into triplet explanations of a gospel truth. And he does so here. The whole chapter is dedicated to Jesus impressing upon these scribes and Pharisees of just the depth of God's joy and delight in repentant sinners. If you look at the passage that I read, those two parables, we have the certainly the explanation or the short story of the shepherd and the lost sheep. In verses 8 through 10, we have a woman who has lost one of her coins, and it's found. And then verse 11 through the remaining of the chapter is a more detailed, intricate narrative of the prodigal son, or the son that was lost. Every one of these stories highlight the joy that our Father in heaven, our Savior, and even the angels in glory have over a repentant sinner. Look with me again to just highlight verse 7. I tell you, Jesus said, that in the same way, just like the shepherd who had found the lost sheep, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons. Verse 10, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Verse 32, but we had to celebrate and rejoice, the father says to the self-righteous son. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Luke masterfully encapsulate the stories in the parentheses of these self-righteous religious elite. As I just read verse 32 Obviously, Jesus ends uh, this, the, the, triplic, the triplicate narratives, these stories, he ends with highlighting this self-righteousness by saying we had to rejoice. It was the appropriate thing to do. It was the right thing to do, meaning not rejoicing over one found sinner would be inappropriate. It wouldn't be right. But look at verse 1. What we'll find in the stories as we begin to look at this chapter that highlights that Jesus is a friend for sinners for sure. And many uh, sermons that have been preached throughout the ages have had that title. But we see the context. We see the cause, we, we see what, what prompted our Lord to, well, to teach these parables. Verse 1 tells us that, well, tax collectors and sinners were coming to Christ. Why were they coming to Christ? Verse 1 says to listen to him. 
They were drawing near to him, the text says. Coming near to him, to listen to him. To listen to him do what? To teach them how they can be made whole and complete and clean before God. See, one of the things we need to remember, beloved, is you don't have to convince sinners they're dirty. These were people that knew they were sinners. These were people that knew they were wayward. They knew they were traitors. They, they knew they were corrupt. That there was a deadness and, a, and an infection in their soul. They knew this. And whether it be through the rumors or whether it be through the, the witnesses going out who have had been saved by Jesus or whether they just come across Jesus teaching on a hillside somewhere, they had heard him talk about how to become right with God, how to become clean, how to be washed, and they're drawing near to him. That's the context. That's what prompted the Pharisees to express their aggravation. In fact, we see in verse 2 that the Pharisees take offense to this. They're offended. It said both the Pharisees and the scribes begin to grumble. They begin to complain. They begin to express their aggravation and their offense by saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, I guess before going further, I just need to bring to light what it means to be a tax collector and, well, a sinner. That those two designations are being used in the text and they, are, they do designate something different, each one, uh, at least the, the, the idea of a tax collector was seen by the other Jews as being a traitor to his people, one who had compromised with uh, the Romans, the occupiers, those that worked against their neighbors and their brothers and their sisters, their countrymen, in order to aid these oppressors who were occupying their country, being the Romans. And they were despised, they were hated, they were looked down upon. You know, Matthew was a tax collector who wrote that gospel. Now, the sinner was a Jewish person. Oftentimes the word is used to express someone that is in deep immorality. Sort of drunk on the age of debauchery. Someone who is, who has put off all of the protections of religion and ethics and morality and have just given themselves over to their lusts. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes would not even barely look at them or touch them or be defiled by them. All throughout the gospel, if you will, you can turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 11. Notice in the calling of Matthew in verse 9, it says, And Jesus went on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. We have all these notorious criminals and sinners eating with Jesus In verse 11, and then the Pharisees saw this and they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Basically, why is your teacher defiling himself? They would have considered Jesus to be unclean at that point because of his, well, participation with these tax collectors and sinners and having a meal with them. Remember, beloved, in the Orient, in the East, uh, uh, Asia, in these Eastern cultures, having a meal with someone indicated a relationship of sorts. To have a meal with someone, to dine with someone, had some substance to it. And they were appalled and offended by this. Luke highlights this in chapter 15 because it's obvious that along along the way in Jesus' ministry, as he went from place to place, and you might even describe it this way, as Jesus went to the other side of the tracks, those places that no one else wanted to go, possibly because it was dangerous, sketchy, could get yourself in trouble. And here he is preaching the gospel and these sinners are coming to him. Now they're not coming to him as it were, if you, just to dispel this idea in your mind because we will tend to justify not doing the ministry to the unlovely, right? And we will justify this, but notice they're not coming for a sandwich. They're not coming for simply a bowl of soup. Verse one tells us they're coming to listen to him. They're coming to hear what he has to say. They're coming because of the message. They're coming that they might hear the invitation of heaven calling sinners to repentance. Jesus is not in any way accommodating their sin as some in the socialized gospel world would at least try to promote that Jesus is somehow accommodating these sinners. He's not accommodating these sinners. He's preaching the gospel to them. He's telling them the truth about their sin. But again, 
Even when you are preaching the gospel to a sinner, you have to do very little convincing that they are corrupt, that they are dirty, that they are somehow unworthy of God. Sinners know this, don't we? We know this. And it's the quite opposite of the Pharisees who saw themselves as worthy of God. Some of these verses that come to our minds is when Jesus is teaching, and again, these things were constantly cropping up throughout his ministry when he said, is it not the sick who need a physician? And we would all say yes. It's the sick that need a physician. It's a sinner that needs to be cleansed and washed and made whole and complete. It's not the righteous. And that's why Jesus said, I didn't come to save the righteous. But the sinner. And these were convinced they were sinners. And the Pharisees, in a display of their self-righteousness, of their pride and their arrogance, their religious bigotry, well, they take offense. And this prompted Jesus to go into these parables and to explain The obvious, you know, the obvious is that God saves sinners. What might not be obvious, though, is how God rejoices over sinners that are saved. You see, I think all of us here this morning would wholeheartedly agree and say even together that, yes, God saves sinners. Are we convinced that God rejoices in the saving of sinners? And this is what's amazing about the text. Uh, J.C. Ryle, in preaching from this portion of God's word, just goes into a, a just catalog of of how the love of God is displayed in these stories. Uh, Matthew Henry does the same thing differently, but very similar. I mean, Matthew Henry goes to talk about how the, it is God's great pleasure to see sinners come to repentance. Now, how is this truth revealed in the parables. Well, notice the first one, the parable of the lost sheep. In this parable, we have a shepherd, we have a lost sheep, and then we have a community that's gathered at the end when the sheep is found to celebrate the finding of the sheep. So even in this story, we have we have something that is lost, something that is found, and something that's rejoiced over. Same thing with the lost coin. There is something lost, there is something found, and then there is that rejoicing 
over finding it. Now, the prodigal son is a more detailed story that we'll get into, but it's the same truth in greater detail. A shepherd and his sheep. A woman and a piece of silver. More than likely, and I think this can be supported, Notice the woman doesn't have a husband. She doesn't call her husband to rejoice with her. She calls her friends and neighbors. More than likely, this woman was either widowed or somehow divorced. And this dowry she has or this money that she has left over from the husband is all she has. And you can imagine how important a sheep is to the shepherd, right? You're, you know, if you're going to be a shepherd, you don't want to be known for losing sheep. If you are a single woman, whether a widow or uh, one that has been put out, right, divorced, well, in this environment, money would be your lifeline. You had to take care of yourself. So you can see how desperate she would be to what? Collect and find that missing piece of silver. So there's an there's a energy, there's a desire, there's this great effort, if you will, that she puts into finding this piece of silver. And so she rejoices when she finds it. And then in the third one, you have a father and a son, or you could say a parent, and a child. We may not be able to relate to a shepherd and his sheep. I don't see any shepherds out here. Maybe we can relate to the woman in a lost piece of money. But I think all of us, or most of us, looking at the age of the congregation, can relate to a parent and the loss of a child. So it should touch each of us as we work through this section of Scripture. So let's begin working on the parable of the lost sheep. Notice the shepherd. In verse 3, he says, So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you? Notice how Jesus draws his listeners into the story. What man among you, yourselves, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Now, it's interesting that in verse 4, Jesus draws these scribes and Pharisees into the story, into the parable, and it would have been offensive to them for him to do that because they had a low view of shepherding and shepherds. They were the religious elite. They were scholars, people. They did not dirty themselves with animal husbandry. They didn't take uh, they, they did not see themselves as dealing with nasty, dirty sheep. And sheep are pretty dirty if you've ever seen them. So this, from the opening statement, would have been somewhat offensive to them because he's drawing them into the story. But there's a theological reason for this because throughout the Old Testament... God is described himself as the shepherd, 
Remember the call to worship this morning? The call to worship recognized that we are the sheep of his pasture, implying what? Intimating that we are the sheep of God, that he is our shepherd. So God doesn't have a problem with identifying himself as the shepherd. Throughout the Old Testament, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, what do we see? The prophets are shepherds. The priests are to be shepherds. Kings are to be shepherds. I think there is a, well, I think Jesus is actually poking a little bit here. I think he's actually showing them what they ought to be caring for. They haven't been caring for it at all. He's demonstrating them. Listen, all along the way, God has demonstrated a deep care for wayward sinners going all the way back to the garden. If you are listening to the shorter catechism study that we've been doing, you know that I have emphasized greatly the garden incident and the significance of that. And what do we see after Adam and Eve's fall? We see that our God who is a saved who is coming as a savior at that point to walk with them in the cool of the day. He's looking for them. He would have been completely just in carrying out the sentence of death at that time because he had already told them, the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. But he didn't exercise that right. Rather, he displayed himself as a savior, one who is willing to save the wayward, one who is willing and calm to make dirty sinners clean again. I think this was designed to heap great conviction upon his, well, listeners and upon these religious elite, if you will. What man among you all along throughout your history of the Hebrew people, you were to be shepherds, whether you were to be a shepherd king, David, whether you were a priest or whether you were a prophet, you were sent out to shepherd my people, to act, if you will, in my place because I am the great shepherd of the sheep. And that's what Jesus teaches us in John chapter 10. I am the great shepherd of the sheep. But he tells them, he says, well, what man? Now, you see, he has a hundred sheep. Now, that's a lot of sheep. You might say he uses a exaggerated number because it might be tempting that if you have a hundred sheep, who would go get the one? But the point that Jesus is making here is that this is exactly the desire of the great shepherd. 
Seen in this shepherd, he leaves the 99. Even though he has many, he goes after the one, highlighting and magnifying this joy in seeing sinners come to repentance. He leaves the many for the one. You really just do not see a Pharisee lifting a finger to help anyone but themselves. And in fact, that's what Jesus says in Matthew. When you get into that series of woes in Matthew 23, he says you don't even lift a finger to help one of your brethren. All you do is heap on them burden after burden. Verse 5, he says, when we found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Brothers and sisters, in the application, because the story is so clear, the application is where we need to drive home several points. I think the first point we need to drive home is number one, is that our God, the love that our God has for sinners is amazing, but it's active. It's an active love. Notice in verse four, he says, does he not, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? The sentiment, the idea here, there's, there's great cost in going after the sheep. That's the idea. Effort. It's costly. It's not convenient. It's not easy. Where's the shepherd? Where does the shepherd have to go to retrieve the lost sheep? We don't know. It's lost. He has to go search for it. He has to go look in all of these various places where the sheep could, well, injure himself, fall into a hole, fall into some crevice, fall into a creek. He could find the sheep wandering miles away because that's what sheep do. They just walk and walk and walk and they have no sense of danger. There's no sense of anything going on around them because they're not very smart animals. And the shepherd has to exert a great amount of effort and energy to go find the sheep because the sheep has no concept of staying in the vicinity of something in a place that it knows or recognizes. It just wanders off. (laughs) 
had to be convicting because what Jesus is certainly doing, he is not just bringing the Pharisees and the scribes into the parable, but he's, rec- he's showing them that they don't have this. He does because he ultimately is the shepherd. He's ultimately the one who has left glory, Philippians 2 says. He's laid aside this glory to come and put on human flesh, right? Born into this world with all of the infirmities of humanity. Hebrews 5 says, growing up under all of the afflictions that anyone else would grow up under. Having to learn how to read and write having to learn how to do all of the various things that any other human child would have to learn, Jesus did. Why? So that he could come and offer himself up at the right time whenever the Father had deemed it to be to offer up himself as the perfect sacrifice for sin and save sinners. There's no conflict here, beloved, with the doctrine of election at all. See, the invitation goes out. The gospel invitation goes out to who? All sinners, any who will listen. To do what? Come and repent of your sins and be washed and be made clean and be adopted into the family of God. The shepherd exerts a lot of effort to go after this wayward sheep. But notice also how the love of God is described in verse 5. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. He doesn't rebuke the sheep. He picks the sheep up and carries him home. I go back to the point I made earlier about Tax collectors and sinners, they know they're sinners. They know they're not right with God. They know they're not inheriting heaven. They know they're unholy. But was it that exactly what we thought, beloved, when each of us come to Christ? I want you to think back to that time, that, that sphere of time, that season of time. Because there may not be that exact moment, but that season of life that you found yourself in, when you what? You bore the weight of your wretchedness. You bore it. You thought about it. You, you, these unholy affections, these unholy desires, these, these unholy practices. I, I, I mean, woe is me. Almost like Isaiah. I'm a person of unclean lips. You remember? I remember having someone continuing to testify to me of the gospel and the saving work of Christ. And I didn't need convincing that I was a sinner. I 
was fully aware of my sin. And I was fully aware of what righteousness was. I just knew I didn't have it and possess it. But I do remember thinking, take this burden from me. I want to be relieved of this burden of sin. I want to be liberated from this death. And I remember, and I guess I stand in a long line of others who have testified to this, I remember after confessing my sin and asking Christ to save me, feeling liberated, feeling clean, feeling like a new creation in Christ Jesus. That's the picture here. The sheep is put upon Jesus' shoulders and carried home. But he's not just carrying the sheep home. Verse 5, notice. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. And what does he do as he lays the sheep on his shoulders? He rejoices. He praises God. Another one found. I've come to seek and save that which is lost. Father, I have found another one of your sheep, your lost sheep. And he rejoices. But he doesn't just rejoice alone. When he comes home, he calls his neighbors and friends together to rejoice. But it's, it's verse 7 that we ought to spend some time gawking at and looking into. And that is when Jesus looks now at the Pharisees personally and he says, I tell you. Look at the emphatic nature of that. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Not just over a sinner, over a sinner who what? Repents of their sin over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. It's hard to imagine heaven stops and rejoices over a repentant sinner. But that's what Christ says. It's as if all of the divine world stops and all of the angels in heaven rejoices over one of God's lost sheep. The same with the woman who, lo who loses the money. Notice the effort she goes through. That this is the point that is made, the effort that, is, that God goes to to save sinners. Lo, she sweeps the house, she lights a lamp, and she cleans everything up. She's searching diligently for it. She is not going to leave a chair unmoved, anything like that. She's going to remove all the furniture. She's going to sweep the floor clean. She's going to find this piece of money 
And again, the exertion of the love of God. God just doesn't sit in heaven and say, be saved. Our God's a saving God. He comes to save. He comes to save you from your sin. He comes to deliver you from your sin. He comes to hold on to you for that great day of salvation. He comes to present you before his Father, perfect and complete in his sight. He comes to do a saving work and to be your Savior to the uttermost. And that's why we can rejoice and say, yes, I have been saved. I am being saved. And one day I will be saved because of my great shepherd in heaven who knows how to save sinners. Again, Jesus repeats himself. It's, it's, notice he's just driving the point home. In verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Brothers and sisters, this morning in these two parables, we should learn to be appalled at self-righteousness. We should loathe it. We should loathe self-righteousness when we see it in ourselves. You know, that moment, that, 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 at that time when we think that somehow we deserve salvation and someone else does not. Loathe that idea. Despise that thought. Learn to repent of such an idea. Train yourself to, to consider that as self-righteousness and oh, how if, he rejo if God rejoices in the salvation of one repentant sinner, notice how he would loathe this idea of one who doesn't think they need a savior. Because God is willing to save a sinner who repents of his sin. But how do you save the righteous? How do you save someone who doesn't sin? How do you save someone who is worthy of salvation? How do you even come to convince that one of their, of their sin? We must learn to loathe self-righteousness. And we must hate it in ourselves. And we must not allow it to spring up in our hearts and in our lives. We must not let it affect the way we look at others who are, well, even notorious sinners that God may call to himself when the preaching of the gospel. Where it should not detract us from preaching to those who are of the lowest estate of life. Yes, they viewed these sinners as being the, the bottom of the rung of society. And, and they were, but that's who Jesus comes for. They were the wretched ones. They were the ones that would rob and steal. They were the ones that no one was safe to be around. These were the ones that committed adultery and fornications and all kinds of notorious sins. Yes, these are the ones 
but they need the gospel too. We must avoid the temptation to have the church where everybody looks exactly like me. Has the, as you're sitting here this morning listening to the parables and you've been reminded of the amazing love of God, how will you use it today moving forward? How will you use the truth of God's active love in saving sinners? How will that spur you to to Repent of your sins. You know, this morning we, we could have a variety of people listening to this sermon. We could have a sinner. No one knows what you do in private. No one knows what you long for in your heart and your mind. But God does. We could have those sitting here today that honestly looks down upon anybody else as unworthy of them. The religious elite. And yet, how does this message prompt you to to die to the sin of self-righteousness and to actively seek to repent of your sins because there's a Savior waiting for you? There is a Savior, a shepherd waiting to receive you, carry you home, and rejoice with his neighbors, rejoice with the angels in heaven that there has been a repentant sinner come home. How will the love of God activate you today? How will the love of God activate you religiously? How will he How will the love of God activate your Christian practice, your Christian witness? How will the love of God displayed in these parables prompt you to seek with Christ and save that which is lost? You know, we looked at, for several weeks, we looked at the the narrative, the parable of the, the great white throne judgment. When you look at all of the, the, the things that Jesus brings up, I was thirsty, I was hungry, I was naked, I was sick, I was in prison. All of those are people to be pitiful, pitied and pitiful. but these are the ones that Jesus is preaching to and seeking after. He did not come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. Let's pray. Now, gracious Father, we pray that you would take the 
truth of this message and drive it deeply in our hearts that our God in heaven rejoices over the repentance of one sinner. And that truth would have its way with us and we would shape our thinking about those who are to be pitied, those who are destitute, those who are without, those who are in need, those who lack, Lord, what is needed in order, Lord, to to just be made even respectable. Lord, let us have a desire and a heart for those who are sinners in the sight of God that we would bring them the gospel and that they would draw near to Christ and hear his teaching and repent of their sins and be born again into the kingdom of heaven and our bro- be made our brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, Father, keep us from this dreadful sin of self-righteousness and self-importance. Lord, we confess it. Lord, we confess it now. And we pray that you would put that lust of pride to death in our hearts and help us to recognize, oh, Lord, that we too have been We were wretched sinners and Christ came and saved us. We were unworthy of this great salvation. We were unworthy and unfit for this amazing love of God and yet our God saves. Thank you, Father, for loving sinners, loving us and bringing us, O Lord, to a place where we can see this amazing love in your word and rejoice in it. We pray in Christ's name, amen.